This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. Each week, you'll hear compelling conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, we hear from Arthur C. Brooks. Brooks is president of the American Enterprise Institute and its Beth and Ravenel Curry Scholar in Free Enterprise. Previously, he taught economics and social entrepreneurship at Syracuse University. Brooks is the author of 10 books, including The Road to Freedom, How to Win the Fight for Free Enterprise. You may have also seen his frequent commentaries in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. In this lecture, entitled The Formula for Happiness, Brooks discusses our collective desire to be happy. Social scientists believe they have cracked the code on happiness. By marrying ancient wisdom and new data, they've identified what brings the most happiness and the most unhappiness to the most people. Brooks argues that these answers should not only change the way we live our lives, but also disrupt how we govern our country. Here's Arthur Brooks. It's an honor to be here at the Aspen Ideas Festival. To be with all of you, thank you for giving me an hour of your time. Uh, this distinguished festival has led the fight for better ideas, bringing new ideas to, to audiences now for this last decade. And what a wonderful relationship it is for my institution, the American Enterprise Institute, to be part of this. I'm going to talk not about public policy very much today. I'm going to talk about something that's deeper than policy. I'm going to talk about something that all of us share, which is our desire to be happy people. And I'm going to start by asking you to think of somebody in your life who's happy all the time. You know the person. You've got it in your head. It's, it's very annoying. This is, <laughs> you know, you work with her. You studied in school with her, whoever it is, right? And they have this secret, and you think to yourself, what do you got going? What is the secret to your happiness? And you always want to know. You know, that, that person's my wife. I live with that person. See, see, she's an optimist, and I've been living with this for decades. And for a long time, I tried to figure out what actually it is that she was doing that I wasn't seeing so I could get part of it. Let me give you an example, okay? There's a true life example from last December. Uh, we, my wife and I, we have a house full of teenagers. So, you know, pity us. And we were coming back from a parent-teacher conference that had gone sadly wrong, right? I know some of you, know, some of you experienced this. Um, and you know, it was a big grades problem with my son, who's 14. Okay, big grades problem. A, you know, we were talking to the director of the school, and uh, and. Um, we got in the car afterward, and it was a lot of unresolved issues, and I was driving, and there was this icy silence. She's sitting on the passenger side. She finally, she breaks the silence. She says, here's how we need to think about it. At least we know he's not cheating. <laughs> See, that's an optimist. <laughs> That's a naturally happy person. What's the secret to that? It's my topic today. I want to tell you about the best research on happiness, on your happiness and mine. I want to tell you what we can't change and what we can. And if I do my job, you're going to leave in an hour, and you're going to have four things that you can do for the rest of the day and the rest of the week and the rest of your life. They're going to make you a happier person. 
So let's get started. Now, there are 30 years of books and articles about the subject of happiness. A bunch of you have read them, right? I've read them all. It's kind of so you don't have to, right? And 200 or so articles and books on the subject of human happiness, economists, psychologists, etc. And the most interesting thing that you find is the similarity in the patterns of who's happy. You think the most interesting question is who's happy, right? How many people are happy? It's not a very interesting question because it never changes. You find no matter how you measure it, you can measure it scientifically with functional MRI machines, or there are these great studies that take husbands and wives and they separate them into separate rooms and they'll ask them independently about the happiness of the other, right? See if they lie. And or you can just ask them in large-scale surveys anonymously uh, where you get, and, you, and you execute the questions well and do all the survey methodology the way you're supposed to. You find the same thing in all of these studies. About a third of Americans every year say that they are very happy, okay? very happy about their lives. Now, that doesn't mean right now. That just means all things considered, given the ups and downs, are you very happy about your life? Yes, about a third of Americans. About half of Americans say they're somewhat happy, and the rest say they're not happy. Okay? 10 to 15% of the population is not happy. So the interesting question isn't who's happy, because we know the answer to that, and it's been stable. It doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter how the economy is doing very much. People basically give the same responses year after year. Now, one of the things I'm really interested in, but I'm not going to talk about very much today, actually is unhappiness. And so for those of you who uh, read the New York Times, I have a column monthly about not just the news cycle, about sort of bigger issues. And my column in two weeks is going to be about the subject of unhappiness. So I'll give you a little preview if you'd like to read about this topic. Uh, of the 10 to 15% of Americans who say they're very unhappy, uh, the biggest single reason for unhappiness, which is not the same as happiness, <laughs> They're processed in different hemispheres of the brain, these cognitions, as a matter of fact. But the biggest single reason that people say that they're unhappy is loneliness. Okay, loneliness. Now, I bring that up because I'm going to come back to that in the subject of happiness a little bit later. Okay? But 20% of Americans say that loneliness systematically makes them unhappy about their lives. And it's especially true for men. Okay? So we're going to have to keep that in mind because there's something that we can do about that as we move on and we go on our study of happiness. Okay, the really interesting question about happiness is not how many people are happy, it's what causes it? And we know the answer. Happiness comes from three things. The three things are genetics, circumstances, and values, okay? Or actions, values and actions, okay? And I'm gonna tell you about all three. And I think you'll find it useful because knowledge in this is power. So let's start with genetics. You know, for the, the longest time, I didn't want to think that my genetics affected my happiness. I didn't want to think that my genetics affected anything because I'm an American, and I want to control everything, right? I mean, I can imagine my, you know, my grandfather steaming into New York Harbor. He wasn't saying, sure hope I can get a better system of forced income redistribution. <laughs> he was saying, no, 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 no. He's saying, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to build this thing myself. I'm going to be the person that I want to be, notwithstanding the fact that I'm poor and I'm an orphan and, you know, fill in the blanks. That was your, most of your ancestors were saying the same thing. So as an American, I want to have the control over everything, right? But I got to face facts. And I look at the data and I look at the studies and it turns out that genetics matter a lot in your whole personality. How do we know? Uh, there are psychologists at the University of Minnesota, social psychologists that have done 
incredible studies looking at twins. And in specific, they have a database of identical twins that were separated at birth, <laughs> and they were adopted into different families and then given personality tests independently at the age of 40. They were born between 1936 and 1955. Okay, when they're age 40, having identical twins, carbon copies genetically, you get them back together at 40 and ask them about their values and their personalities. And you've seen all these stories that have all the kind of funny things. They smoke the same brand of cigarettes. You know, they have their, their wives have the same name. You know, weird stuff like that. Who cares? It turns out the stuff that matters is creepily similar as well. What we learned from this is every part of your personality that we test, which part is nature and which part is nurture? How much of how you vote is genetic? 40%, 40%. How much of how religious you are is genetic? 40%. Turns out how much your particular religion is affected by genetics is 0%. But how religious you are is 40%. Your uh, outgoing personality, your neuroticism, your tendency toward alcohol abuse, your proclivity toward criminality, all of that stuff is more than 50% genetic. And your happiness, 48%. 48% of your moods, you know those moods you always tend back to? And your spouse says, you're always such a grouch. You know, these good things happen to you in your career, and you get a raise, and you get a promotion, and, you know, we bought that beautiful house in Aspen, and you're still a grouch, right? Huh. That's because 48% of it comes from your parents. It's their fault. <laughs> yeah. I told my, my happy wife that, and she said, See, it's true, your mother did make you unhappy. <laughs> so 48% of this stuff is genetic. Happy people have happy kids, right? Um, but there are other innate qualities that are innate uh, characteristics of people that matter like genetics. They're not genetic, but one of the biggest ones, one of the most interesting ones is gender, right? And so here's the question. Social scientists have been asking this one for generations now. Who's happier Men or women? Okay. What's your guess? Yeah, that's right. So, so I heard. <laughs> if we took a vote, it would be overwhelming. So, but I did hear both men and women, and that more or less exhausts the, the possibilities, right? <laughs> you know. So, what do the data say? The data say women, but women have been converging on the happiness level of men. For generations, women were happier than men. But it, the, the, and it's not because they're converging now, not because men are getting happier, but because women are converging on the misery of men. <laughs> now, why? Social scientists won't touch that one with a 20-foot pole, why women are getting unhappier. I'm going to leave it to you. And maybe in the Q&A, you're going to tell me why. And maybe you'll write an op-ed about it in the New York Times. So, women are happier than men, and I've studied that actually looking at marital status. I love looking at it with respect to marital status because it tells you a lot about uh, how we view life. Single women are happier than single men. Married women are happier than married men. Widowed women are way happier than widowed men. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I told that one to my wife, and she said, huh, no kidding, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the, 
The only group of women who are not happier than men are divorced women, and there's actually an explanation for that, which is typically when men and women are divorced, uh, women have cust sole custody of kids, or most of the custody of kids, and working and taking care of kids at the same time is very stressful. So there's what we call in social science an exogenous explanation for that. It's not because of these natural gender differences. Women basically are happier than men. Now, there's another related question that I find really interesting, and you'll see why in a minute, and that is the average unhappiest age in a man's life. We know this one, tons of studies on this. I've looked at the national data, and I know, because I've looked at these data very carefully, that there is an average, distinct, unhappiest age in a man's life. Women don't have it very much. When women are, women are over the years more stable than men, men are all over the place, men are a mess, at particularly one age. When is it? When's the average unhappiest age in a man's life? Oh, yeah, you were converging on the solution. <laughs> Somebody's read my books. Um, that's, uh, that's not fair. So uh, 40, actually, it's 45. It's creeping up, but it's 45, right? Okay, 45. How many men in here are under 45? L less than 45, okay? Yeah. You guys are on your way down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. For 45. So 45. What's the deal? Okay, now. Looking at that, social psychologists have these really pat explanations that are not very convincing. I talked to one of my colleagues at Syracuse, you know, how come 45-year-old guys are so bummed out? And he gave me all this kind of jargony, you know, the attenuation of traditional family relationships, blah, blah, blah. I didn't know what he's talking about. And I said, you know, put it to me in basic language that an economist can understand. And he said, that's when your wife figures out definitively that you're boring, right? <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, um, there's got to be more. There's got to be more to it. So I went in search. I went in search. I got the data. I looked at myself. And here's actually what's going on. It's not, don't fear, young guys out here. It's not all 45-year-old men who are really in the dumps, no. It's a sizable minority, close to a quarter, who are really struggling. So what I want to know is what's going on with them. And I want to know about the 45-year-old guys who are doing great because then I can find some secrets to what we should do behaviorally, how we should live our lives. And what you find about the guys who are 45 and they're having a hard time is basically this. When you're in your 20s and you're in your 30s, both men and women increasingly, but traditionally more men, life and its goals are actually simple. You want to do better? You want to be happier? You want to be more successful? Hit the gas on your career. Make more money, get the promotions. If you want to if you, if you need to move cities, you need to go from LA to Chicago, you do it. You pick up your family and you move, right? Do it. Follow your career. And things are great and that seems to work. And then guys hit their mid-40s and they say, whoa, I'm on the wrong road. I mean, this super highway, I've been cruising down. I don't want to be on this highway. I want to be on a road that I chose. I want to be on that little dirt road over there, right? And there's a guy on it, on a motorcycle, right? <laughs> No helmet, right? <laughs> I want to be that guy. I mean, he's doing it his way. He chose that little road. I want to be that guy, but I don't, I'm a lawyer, and I don't want to be a lawyer. You hear it again and again. I know some of you guys are lawyers, sorry, right? And, and so here's my real question. Who's the guy on the motorcycle, and what's he doing right? That's the real question for us today. And you know what? I know who he is. He's me. And I'm going to tell you how that happened. 
It's a, you know, Elliot kind of alluded to it a minute ago. See, I didn't start off saying, you know, when I was a little kid, a six-year-old boy saying, when I grow up, I want to run a right-wing think tank. No, no. I, no, it, I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to be a musician, right? I wanted to be a, I really wanted to be a French horn player because I started playing French horn actually when I was about eight years old and it was, I was really good at it and I love music and I love the arts and, and I went to Tanglewood every year when I was in high school. I should have come here. <laughs> and, and, and what happened was I went to college when I was 19 and I immediately dropped out, right? Dropped out, kicked out, splitting hairs. And, <laughs> And yeah, it's like some of my colleagues from AEI are watching this going, really? You know? <laughs> um, and, and I went on the road as a French horn player, and I traveled all over the place. You know, I, I saw all 50 states, and, and I traveled in dozens of foreign countries, and I played concerts all over the place. And I toured with a, for a little while with a, a guitar player named Charlie Bird, who introduced Bossa Nova to the United States. It was great stuff. I mean, it was, I loved it. And I wound up in the Barcelona Symphony, okay? And it was a wonderful time. Actually, I went to Barcelona because I was chasing a girl and, who was a you know, rock and roller. And, and, and it worked. They got married and we're having her 23rd wedding anniversary. She's the happy one, right? And she's the, right. So, I mean, talk about success. It was great, right? But when I was about 28 and I was in the Barcelona Symphony, I started looking around and I thought, you know, this is good now, but I think it's not going to be so good later. How did I know? Because I was working with all these guys in their mid-40s, and they weren't very happy. A lot of them weren't very happy. I mean, some of them were, but I thought, I bet I'm going to be one of those guys who's saying, I don't want to play the same music over and over again. I want to try something else. So I hatched a plan. I said, good now, but later, when I'm that age, I want to be doing something different. And I, I made a plan to go back to school to get my college degree, and I called up my dad, and I said, Dad, he was in Seattle. I grew up in Seattle, and he was this long-distance call in those days. I said, Dad, i got big news. I'm going to drop out of the orchestra. I'm going to quit music. You know, I'm going to go study math or, or uh, poetry or economics. I don't know. I'm going to improve my mind, and maybe I'll be a college professor like you, because my dad's a college professor. And there's silence, <laughs> silence on the line, right? And he says, what are you talking about? You know, you've started a family. Uh, you're, you're doing well in your career. You, you can't do that. You can't just quit. It's very irresponsible. Why? Why? I said, because you know what? I don't think I'm going to be happy, right? I mean, it's a killer, right? Killer argument. I'm not going to be happy. You know what he says? What makes you so special? <laughs> but it was the right thing to do. I found it, but I found it by accident. If we want to actually turn this into something really good, we can't do it by accident like I did. We got to figure out what the structural equations of that are so that we can pass on the secret to the best life, so I can tell, teach my kids about that, so that we can spread this around, and that's where we're going. And I'm going to tell you what the secret turned out to be that I accidentally found, but it's going to take about nine more minutes. I'd have to tell you about something first. So 48% of your happiness, genetic. The big thing that you think affects your happiness is events and circumstances, right? If only this thing would happen, then I'd be a happy person. When I was teaching at Syracuse, I would ask my graduate students, what would make you happy? What would give you permanently a happier life? Right? They would say things like, 
If only I could graduate with my degree and find a really good and stable job, then I'd be happy. Right? If, only, if only I can convince my girlfriend to marry me, then I'll permanently be happy. Big events. Right? Now, if you ask people in New Jersey where they would most like to live, they'll usually say Colorado or California. California, right? Now, why? It's not the taxes. It's, it's, uh, it's the weather. It's beautiful, right? So, so the real question is, how much of circumstance of doing these big things, of attaining your goals, and little things too, right, that make you happy or unhappy as the day goes by? You know, uh, you get a nasty email from a colleague or family member and it really brings you down. How much of that actually does affect your happiness? How much of the big and little things that are good affect your happiness? And we know the answer. At any given time, it's 40% of your happiness. You're thrown across the seas of your circumstances. 40% of your happiness. It's a ton. So looking at that, my advice should be, Follow your dreams. Pursue your goals. I mean, that's really traditional stuff, right? Real chestnuts in the happiness literature. Figure out your goals and chase these goals. That's wrong. That's wrong. Why? Not because the goals don't matter. Not because goals aren't good. Not because you won't do better things if you have good and nutritious and happy and life-fulfilling goals. The reason is because it doesn't last. The effect doesn't last. Talked to you about a minute ago about weather in California. There are these wonderful studies that ask how long you'll be happier if you actually move there. Hmm? Six months. Six months. Taxes are forever. <laughs> Sunshine, six months. Right? Don't do it. Don't do it, right? You're doing it right. You're spending your summers in Aspen. I mean, you're the smart ones, right? So um, why is this? And the answer is because we're very adaptable. We always go back to our, 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 the moods to which we, you know, it gets back to the 48% issue, effectively, uh, is what's going on. And, and the most wonderful study that points this out, my favorite study on the subject, comes from Northwestern University. Social psychologists at Northwestern, uh, they studied two groups of people. Perhaps you've heard about this study. I mean, it's ancient, 1978, but it's so good that people still talk about it a lot. They looked at paraplegics and they looked at lottery winners, okay? And they wanted to know, six months after the punctuating event of their lives, what happened to their happiness? Okay, now, first, paraplegics. The interesting thing is six months after their accident, their happiness had returned almost all the way to where it was the day before their accidents. Incredible. Now, you're thinking, I don't want to do anything. I would do anything. I would die before I would lose all my mobility. I bet, I bet some of you would say that, right? No, you wouldn't. If this happened to you, six months later, you would be you. That's a beautiful thing. Your happiness is not about your ability to walk. It's who you are as a person. It's your soul that actually makes this what it is. It's very encouraging. The more interesting case, perhaps, is lottery. <laughs> so, you know, if you won the lottery, what would you do? That's a typical party game. You want to break the ice with people you don't know? Go around the room. If you hit the lottery, what would you do? It's a, it's a window onto the soul, right? I've done it a million times. I used to do it because of what I study. I used to do it in my classes, and I would ask my students, you know, if you won the lottery, what would you do? They all say the same things, right? I would travel. I would see the world. I would finish my degree without going into debt. Uh, I would finally write that book. People say that. You know, when, when young men are trying to impress women, you know what they say? I'd start a foundation. <laughs> No, you wouldn't. So, <laughs> so here's the thing to notice. They always say great things. 
great things. I win the lottery, good things would happen, right? Now, here's what nobody has ever said, right? If I won the lottery, it'd be so great. I think I'd start by buying a bunch of junk I don't want or need. And then, then I'd get sort of hooked up romantically with somebody who's just using me but doesn't love me, right? <laughs> and then the best part of all, I'd start a nasty alcoholic spiral, right? <laughs> That's what happens. That's what happens to people with the lottery. You've read all the stories, and it turns out they're true. Now, here's the interesting thing from the 1978 study. You look at people who hit the lottery six months later, their happiness about everyday life is lower than it was the day before they won. Huh. So, I mean, not radically lower, but they just enjoy day-to-day -day life less and permanently than the day before they won. Now, how do you measure that? You say, how much do you enjoy shopping, hanging out with family, playing sports, uh, uh, goofing around with your friends, going on a bike ride, watching a game? The answer is less, less. It's as if the circuits have been blown out by this big experience and nothing gives you full flavor ever again. You know, think about what you're really looking forward to this coming weekend. I bet if you told me it would sound really boring. It would be, I'm gonna have dinner with somebody I love. I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend the afternoon with people I'm really interested in and we're gonna talk about these dumb, trivial things. It's relationships. It's the love in your life. That's what gives you enjoyment. And that's what gets blown out by this big experience uh, for people we see in the data who've hit the lottery. And that's the reason that we have these life-ruining behaviors. Because they're looking for the life in life and it's gone, they substitute it with these audacious and preposterous things, like buying stuff they don't want or need, turning to drugs and alcohol, inappropriate relationships. <laughs> That's actually what happens. The best thing that can happen to you when you buy a lottery ticket is that you don't win. <laughs> so, where are we? Circumstances, don't rely on them. Man, set your goals, but don't set your life rudder toward trying to be happy as a, on the basis of this. And so where are we? 48% is genetic. 40% is circumstantial, but you shouldn't be trying to count on that. You got 12% left. You got 12% of your happiness left. Better use it right. right. The stakes are high for not messing it up. Here's how I figured that one out. I had this friend, this buddy, I used to teach with him right after we finished our PhDs, and we were in academia together we're in our early 30s and he, uh, mid-30s, and he was, uh, he had this weird thing happen to him. He went to the doctor and the doctor told him he had 15 years left to live. That's a weird thing to hear. It was because of a congenital, I mean, it's like you got six months, you got your whole life, no, no, 15 years, he had a congenital heart defect that had no known cure at the time, right? Now, I'm 50 now, he would have been 50 now. He died last year. Okay, so, what did he do when it found, he found out he had 15 years left to live? The same thing you would do. You wouldn't come home and mope around and be depressed for 15 years. No, no, no. You'd say, you know, I thought I had 45 years. I'm going to stuff 45 years of life into these 15 years. He changed his life. Huh. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. He said, I'm going to be a better husband and a better father and a better professor and a better citizen I'm going to be a better church member and community member. I'm just going to be better at everything because i got to live. <laughs> 15 years, not that much. He'd come home. I remember one time he came, he told me he came home from work and he said to his wife, honey, we've never been to Istanbul. It's time to go. 
right? <laughs> and you know, he said, I want to have more kids. And his wife's like, easy for you to say, right? He lived. He lived. He lived more than most of us in 15 years. It wasn't sad. It was sad when he died. But it wasn't sad the way you'd say, oh, man, he was too young. He had too much left to do. He did what you'd do. That's your happiness. You have 12%. Use it right. Now the good news. You can use that full 12%. It's under your control completely. But you have to do four things. Here are the four secrets. So what I'm going to give you is a portfolio of things for you to think about and work on, your projects for the rest of your life. And what I want you to do is I want you, when you make your to-do list tomorrow, I want you to put these four things at the top. Then all the other stuff that you were going to do tomorrow underneath it, then I'm going to take the, take the pencil and cross everything out except these four things. Okay? The four things that are most productive in producing your happiness are your spiritual enlightenment, your family, your friendships, and work. I'm going to talk to you about all four of those things. Now, I didn't make it up. I don't necessarily want those things to be the case. That's what comes out of all of the best data. That's what comes from the research. If you take two, I've looked at this myself. This is from the General Social Survey. You want to say Chicago data, the best social survey data available. Two men who are exactly the same demographically, but one of them is, it works on his spiritual life assiduously, uh, is involved, has, a, has a, a good family life, is deeply involved in his community, and is, it works at the highest levels, and the other person lacks all four of those things, notwithstanding all the rest of their demographics, race, sex, everything else. Actually, it's two men, so... Um, you'll find that the man who has the four characteristics is five times as likely to be very happy about his life as the second man. This is the key. This is the key. So let's talk about those four things. The first two, faith and family, they're pretty standard stuff. I mean, there's nobody who, you know, on his deathbed says, I can't believe I wasted all that time in, in pursuit of spiritual enlightenment. You know, I can't believe I wasted all that time with my kids. Ugh. You know, nobody says that, right? You say the opposite. So you understand that. And there's a lot of data on this, and I'm delighted to go into this in the Q&A if you want. But I want to talk about the last two instead. And I want to start with community, which is mostly about charity and friendship. Okay? And I'm going to especially focus on friendship. And I especially want to talk about men because I talked about that at the very beginning. Okay, now, what do we see from the data on friendship? Women are very adroit at making friends. Women are good at friendship. Men are terrible at friendship. Why? Because friendship is a skill that requires practice, and men systematically lose practice for acquiring and cultivating friendships all throughout their lives. Not every man. Some guys are great at it. But most men lose their ability to cultivate and keep friends over the course of their lives. Why? Think about it. If you find this super traditional household where dad is working 60 hours a week, you know, he's not going to go hang out with his buddies from work after work because he's robbing his family. And he's very cordial. He's very good at maintaining collegial relationships, but he's very good at maintaining friendships, and he forgets how to maintain friendships. The loneliest group of people in our society are men at age 60, interestingly. Now, here's something. I went to ask another social psychologist friend of mine. Apparently, he's going to publish this. I don't know. 
And I said, tell me about this loneliness for men in, who are about 60 years old. He says, here's all you need to know. Here's all you need to know. What percentage of 60-year-old men say that their best friend is their wife? Hmm? 60%. 60%. What percentage of their wives say their best friend is their husband? <laughs> 30%. Thirty percent. The story of typical friendship for men who are 60 is that of unrequited love and friendship. So if you want to be happy, you better work on that. You have to work on friendship. It's one of the big four. And what you need to do is to make sure that you treat it like any other goal in your life. Nourish and cherish your friendships because if you don't, you will get worse at it and you won't know how to do it later on in life. That's what the data say. Now, the biggest one that's paradoxical is work. It's work. You know, a lot of people think that work brings misery, that work brings unhappiness, right? That work is just drudgery. I mean, think of all these, all these conversations we're having in America today about dead-end jobs, right? If you don't go to college, you'll, you'll get a dead-end job. I mean, that's what my parents kind of told me. I don't go to college, you get a dead-end job. You know, the problem with Walmart, they create dead-end jobs. You hear that all the time. Wrong? Right? Wrong? Wrong. It's wrong. What percentage of Americans like or love their jobs? 89%. 89%. You didn't know that. Nobody knows. You're thinking 25%, 30%. Now, very few people say it's completely spiritually fulfilling, but that's too high a bar. Most people don't say that about their marriages, right? But if you say, do you like or love your job? 89% say yes. Now, what does that mean? The person who's going to make your sandwich today likes or loves your job. Most likely. Because I've looked at this, and it doesn't matter if you went to college or not. It turns out that doesn't predict it. It doesn't matter if you make above or below average wages. That doesn't predict it either. The beautiful thing is that creating value is something that's inherently valuable itself to the soul. Work brings happiness if you sanctify it every single day. Hmm. Now, why? Why? That's the most interesting question, is why? Now, some people will say, money. I know you won't say that, because your mother taught you that money doesn't buy happiness. But some people are thinking, it's got to be because it's remunerative, and, and it's rewarding financially. Let's just dispense with that. Money doesn't buy happiness. Almost. When people are starving or very poor, money does relieve stress and brings happiness. The only person who will get happiness by adding money to them are the poor. And this is the reason, personally, I believe very strongly in a government safety net for the poorest citizens. Because you can improve their lives. But beyond that, uh-uh. Beyond that, a safety net for the middle class and rich people and corporations and the entitlement state, no happiness. No happiness. Money doesn't do it. It's not money. It's something else. So you go and search. What is it about work that actually is bringing happiness to people? And here's what you find. They acquire something called earned success. Now, earned success is the belief that you're creating value with your life, and you're creating value in the lives of other people. If I take two people, same age, sex, race, religion, even same level of education. This is, again, General Social Survey, University of Chicago data. And both of them say that they have been very successful, that they have earned their success, but one person earns eight times as much money as the second. They are equally likely to say that they are very happy about their lives. Money doesn't buy happiness. Earned success brings happiness. And it doesn't matter what you do if you create value for people in your relationships with others. Here's how I learned that. 
Here's how I learned this. My favorite composer is everybody's favorite composer, Johann Sebastian Bach. Right? My favorite composer. Always has been. What a I mean, so productive. 200 plus cantatas just fell off his pen, orchestra and chorus. I mean, he, he died when he was 65 with this huge corpus of work. Here's how productive he was. He had 20 kids, right? That's productive, right? <laughs> he had this happy life, and, and he wasn't famous when he was alive. He only became famous 100 years after his life because Felix Mendelssohn, the great composer, resurrected his fame and told everybody, you gotta listen to this stuff. This stuff is great, you gotta listen to it. So he just was a guy who was doing this, and somebody asked him, and it was recorded, I don't know why, Herr Bach, why do you write music? Right? Why? This is a question of, I can ask any of you, why do you do your work? And it doesn't matter if you work for money or you work for, to make great kids or to build beautiful things or make beautiful art or volunteer, or, it doesn't matter. Herr Bach, why do you write music? And it just stuck with me so much. And Bach thought about it, and he said, I write music for the glory of God and the good of man. That was his answer. You know, he didn't say, I write music because it's a living. He didn't say, because I'm good at it and I got to pay the rent. He didn't say, look, dude, I got 20 kids. He said, I write music for the glory of God and the good of man. If you can say that, oh, he was traditionally religious, I understand, and maybe you're not. But if you could say, I write music because I have love for other people and I want to serve them. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that the essence of earning your success? That's it. That's the secret. We've got to earn our success and pass it on. Now, it has an opposite. Earned success has an opposite. I've studied that too. That's called learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is a term that comes from Marty Seligman, one of the most distinguished psychologists of our generation. He teaches at the University of Pennsylvania. And Marty Seligman has done experiments with humans where he takes away things that they've earned or he gives them things that they didn't earn, and he finds they become despondent and depressed, and they give up. They learn helplessness. You got a choice. You can earn your success, or you can learn your helplessness. We have to choose about our lives. We have to teach our values such that people will understand this. You know what else? We got to create a system that allows people to earn their success and avoids their learned helplessness. We have a moral obligation. If you join me in saying, we should give most people the best life. You gotta have a system. So what's the system that does that? What's the system that actually makes that occur? You know, when I was a kid, growing up in Seattle, I remember poverty. Now, of course, there were people in poverty around me. I grew up in lower middle class family. And there were people on welfare around me, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a picture in the National Geographic of a kid with flies on his face and a distended belly Remember that? 1970? There was nothing you could do about it. There was nothing I could do about it, except offer up a couple of prayers and alms, right? What's the difference between then and now? 2014 versus 1970. I'll tell you what it is. If you ask most Americans, what's happened to poverty in the world, in the third world, since 1970? 70% of Americans will say it's worse. There's more hunger. That's wrong. If you look at the percentage of the world's population living on a dollar a day or less, starvation level poverty, it's 80% lower than it was when I was a child. 80% decline in poverty. How come? How come? United Nations, US foreign aid, 
World Bank. You can like or hate or something in between those institutions, but that's not what happened. An 80% decline in world poverty. Billions of people pulled out of poverty. You gotta have a solution. You gotta have an answer to what happened. It's the greatest anti-poverty achievement in the history of the world. It has five explanations. Globalization, free trade, property rights, the rule of law, and innovative entrepreneurship, American style. It was the American free enterprise system that started to spread around the world after 1970. I mean, we didn't just take it and put it in these places by force. No, people around the world, they, they looked at you and they said, I want to have their life. I want to have their freedom. I want to have their stuff. And they threw off their chains of their poverty and their tyranny. You built that system. You did that for those people. You lifted those people out of poverty because of the way that you live your life. The fact that we can be here now talking about happiness and improving our minds is because of the American free enterprise system that made it possible through growth and opportunity and even taxes and government. What an extraordinary achievement that we've been able to do here and we've been able to do around the world. Free enterprise does that for everybody. That's the story of earned success. That's the story, if we do it right, of helping people to avoid their learned helplessness. That's the reason I believe in this system. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think that we don't need a government. I'm not a radical about it. But if we don't fight for something that's good and beautiful and allowed us to be here to enjoy this and to learn and to show our love for each other in a spirit of global brotherhood, we're not sharing. We're not giving our, our gift. We're not sharing the secret the happiness. So here's where I'm going to leave it, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. My personal advice, after looking at this data, after reading these studies, is you got to think about four things. Faith, family, community, and work. That's your agenda. That's your happiness portfolio. Define it the way you like, but don't neglect it and keep it in balance. Because if you don't, you're going to be unnecessarily unhappy. And for public policy, I'm not going to tell you how to get it done. If you want, you can look at the website of my organization. Or you can go to the website of any organization that you want in public policy. But I will tell you this. If we don't have a set of policies based on America's gift to the world, which is the American free enterprise system, we're not going to be able to do our job by passing on the spirit of earned success to our kids, our grandkids, to people all around the world who may, may even be Americans in their hearts, but even if they're not, they deserve this secret as well. I'm really honored to be able to talk about this, and I'm looking forward to what you have to say. But for the fact that you've been part of this, that you've been part of this forum, and you're part of this system, and that you're part of the country that can make this possible for more people, my only last two words or thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you. Just marvelous. There's a tiny little film that you can, anybody can download, and it's on happiness. You can download it. Um, it's streaming. It's, I don't even know who it's made by, but it's called Happy. The happiest man in that film was the poorest of the poor in India hmm. because he had all of these things you talked about. Yeah, so, that's watch right. Watch it, everybody, and listen more to then watch your uh, lecture again. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much. And I do endorse the film. Happy is a very good one. And, and to let you know, by the way, we're going to embark on a AEI has this, our biggest new program is called the Program in Human Flourishing. 
It's like, what a weird thing for a Washington think tank, right? And the thing, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to have a handbook for human flourishing. We're going to publish in 2015 and a four-part, four-hour mini-series on the secrets to happiness and human flourishing. They're going to do this, and it's going to go into so much more depth than this. So, so watch for that. Pro my, my guess is it will be in partnership with PBS or, or one of the for-profit um, for companies that do this. Can we come right down here, and then we'll go over there after that. Thanks. Words move mountains, and yeah. words are powerful. What would the motivating words you would use to help somebody who's stuck, somebody who is in the unhappy mode, especially yeah. if they're young and they don't know where they're going in their lives, or they're older and, and they're just unhappy? What are those words to destuck them, to enlighten them? I'm going to give you four words for people who are unhappy. Okay? Actually, I'm going to start by the four words that explain why you're unhappy. Now, the biggest reason that people are unhappy besides circumstance is what they're doing, is the mistakes that they're making. They're looking for, I mean, Thomas Aquinas, the great doctor of the Catholic Church, he said that he explained unhappiness, right? And you don't have to be a Catholic to dig this, right? It helps. Anyway, so and, uh, um, Aquinas said people are unhappy because they're looking for substitutes for God, and the four substitutes for God are money, power, pleasure, and honor. And when he meant honor, he meant fame. Right? Money, power, pleasure, and honor. Those are the four substitutes for God, he said, right? Okay. Now you think about it. Sure. I mean, all these studies that show that the more you post to Facebook, the unhappier you are. That the more you search for money for the sake of it, the unhappier you are. The more you search for pleasures of the flesh, the unhappier you are. It's all true. I got the data. Read it in the New York Times in a week and a half. I promise you it will be compelling. Okay. But I don't have to convince you anyway. And you know why? Because... People follow a simple, deadly, erroneous, erroneous formula. You know what it is? Use people and love things. That's the formula to make you miserable. You want to be happy? You want to not be unhappy? Turn it over. Love people, use things. That's it. Materialism, bad. Uh, unbridled desire, bad. The whole idea that people are out there for your satisfaction, bad. Love people, use things. You'll be on the right track. Right here, yes ma'am. Hi, I'm, I'm Charlotte, and I was a kind of frontier working woman. Now I teach executive women. Right. And I have a proposition on why women are getting to be equal opportunity with men and unhappiness. <laughs> okay. And I think it's because we move up these giant corporations and we realize that meaningfulness yeah. It's hard to come by. Yep. Uh, and so we're, I think, all of us in the process of trying to change yeah. at the top how influence is rendered and how we live in the world as corporations that are profit-driven. And it's, it's a horse race. Yeah. And so we struggle with it. And I think it affects women disproportionately. Yeah, thank you. Um, the evidence suggests exactly what you're saying, that women are getting very, very good at the formula for unhappiness, just as men have been good at that for generations and probably millennia. Uh, and that means that what we need is we need a cultural revolution. We need a moral revolution in this country for women and men. Look, you can't keep doing this. We can't keep converging onto using people and loving things. It's not right. It's not just not right for our society, not right for others. It's not right for us. It's not right for our hearts. 
And until we have a moral revolution inside each one of us, notwithstanding what we do for work and what we do to be successful overtly in the material things in life, if we don't understand these structural equations of what brings people to them, their best selves and gives them the life in life, it's going to be for nothing. You're on the right track. First, thank you. Second, I'm here to confess that I went to a session like this two years ago on the test. I was 19 out of 20 and the most happy that you can possibly be. And I walked out thinking, wow, happily married, son, all my cards were right. I fell into a manhole that was so dark it took me a year to get out of it. And I mentioned it to you because it was genetic. And I want everybody here to know that it can happen to you and you can get out of it. I'm not going to talk about the meds. The other, thing, <laughs> the other thing that I think is material, and forgive me for your screed, is that when you talk about love, we have heard in many iterations, and I infer what I assume you meant to imply, that love is work for others. So service is an enormous component of all of the four uh, headliners that you gave. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, Service, the, the truth of the matter is, one of the big misconceptions that people have about love is that it's easy. It isn't easy. I mean, serving others is really hard, and it's really, you don't want to do it all the time. But think about it. All the things that are most meaningful in life are those for which you sacrificed, and love is something for which you have to sacrifice as well. Love is a purposive assignment to yourself and to others. That's what we understand about love. If you only love when it's convenient, you're going to run into a lot of problems. And those of you who've been married for a long time, you know exactly what I mean. But that's true with everything. Are you going to love your enemies? Are you going to love the strangers? Are you going to, love, are you going to have meaningful relationships? At least show some sort of love toward everyone. I recommend that you do it because this is the great secret. But it's not an easy thing to do. And the best single way to do it is to serve others and force yourself into a service type of environment. I completely agree. I can, this, is, this, this really is what it is. And incidentally, cognitive behavioral therapy for depression, which is very effective when used in conjunction with a, medic, with a medication uh, um, regimen, often talks about serving others to forget oneself. Congratulations on your success. Beg your pardon? And gratitude, absolutely. Look, gratitude is part of love. Congratulations on your success. I recommend to all of your interest Andrew Solomon's great book, The Noonday Demon, about the subject of unhappiness in the form of depression. For those of you who are either suffering from that or who are very interested. We've got time for two more questions. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Well, it sort of falls on with uh, the last comment. It's more of a question. Let's talk about value. Yeah. So it seems like everything is, uh, all the four cores are tied to value. Yeah. But can you be a little bit more tangible about what you mean by value? I know we talk about social value creating social value, creating value, it seems sort of still quite intangible to me. Yeah. Um, I studied social entrepreneurship for a long time. I taught social entrepreneurship at a business school. And one of the most interesting things is when you look at the, uh, the orientation of entrepreneurs, it doesn't matter if they're commercial entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurs. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're, they're saving souls or cleaning up the environment or teaching kids to read or helping the starving or making tons of dough. They have the same kind of orientation. Basically, value is something that you denominate yourself. It's basically what you need to ask yourself is, what's the coin of the realm? What will actually denominate this that I can count? <laughs> That's the important thing, because you know what's written on your heart about the value that you uniquely need to create. You know your vocation. 
The biggest thing that we can do for our kids is help them ascertain their vocation. The process of discernment is the greatest uh, favor, the greatest blessing that we can give to our kids. Why? Because when they discern, when they know, then they know what value actually means. Nobody should tell you what value actually means because that's your personal assignment. That's your life's course to figure that out. And that's the reason I left it ambiguous. Because for every single one of us in here, all 400 of us, it's slightly different. Helping our fellow man, making a lot of money, it doesn't matter how you measure it, but you have to understand it and accumulate it in a meaningful way. Uh, I'm Joshua Mayanis from Denver North. And uh, my question is, uh, what impact does um, over-justification effect have on happiness such that you replace an intrinsic reward with an extrinsic reward? Okay, uh, explain over-justification to our friends here. Such that, like, if you go for a run and you get those endorphins up, mm -hmm. like, you're doing it for yourself, for your growth. Yeah. And actually, an extrinsic reward is like eating a big chocolate cake after because you ran. And yeah, all that. okay. Extrinsic versus intrinsic, right? It's a wonderful set of studies that look at children. I mean, that we use children as human subjects. Imagine being my kids, right? I mean, they're, they're like total human subjects, right? And, and uh, when you take their, their wonderful social psychological experiments using kids, and what they do is they, they, they first, they ask them, what's your favorite toy? Right? They said, my truck or blocks or dolls or whatever and in the first part of the experiment. And then they measure how much enjoyment they're getting from playing with their favorite toys. Second part of the experiment, they say, if you go play with that Barbie doll, if you go play with that truck, their favorite toy, I'll give you a cookie. They enjoy the toy less. Same thing is true using college students, where they're having college students working on these really interesting puzzles. And in the first part, they work on the puzzles, and they do it voluntarily. In the second part, they're paid to work on the puzzles. And as soon as they get a break, they stop. They put the puzzles down. It's less fun when you're motivated extrinsically. This is a big deal for those of us who run companies. Be very careful when people truly love what they do bribing them to do what they do. Make sure that part of the reward is inherent because the extrinsic, extrinsic rewards really matter. Here's what it means for happiness. Here's what all this stuff means for happiness. Aristotle had it right. You know what Aristotle said is the secret to doing things that make you happy? Do useless things. That's it. If you're doing it for some other reason, it brings less happiness. It's the useless things that bring you bliss. Right? It's the conversation about the World Cup that brings you happiness. It's not the conversation about work, because work is instrumental. You might like the conversation about work. I love my work. I'm crazy about my work. But it's instrumental. It's the useless things in life. Do more useless things. Now, you know they're not useless. I mean, your, your pursuit of spiritual enlightenment is far from useless, but it sure looks useless, right? I mean, what you do in your sacramental life is the ultimate useless act, yet it is what will bring you bliss. It is spending your resources on a bunch of kids you don't want or need. Useless. <laughs> it's the secret of happiness. It's the secret of happiness. The last word I'm going to leave you with is do more useless things today. God bless you. That was Arthur C. Brooks, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 2nd, 2014. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and from across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that both shape our lives and challenge our times. 
You can discover more at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can also follow the festival on Twitter at Aspen Ideas and at Facebook slash Aspen Ideas. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.